Let me pray, and we'll jump into that passage that Hannah read to us. Father, thank you so much for your goodness that we sang about. And Lord, we pray that we would experience that as we look at your word today. Uh, Lord, would you please speak to us clearly, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing in a series called The Great Physician, which is based on a book by one of my favorite authors named G. Campbell Morgan. And this book was published back in 1937, and it's pretty much out of print. Um, But what Morgan's book does, and therefore what we're doing, is we're looking at how it is that Jesus deals with and interacts with individuals. And G. Campbell Morgan's great insight in his book is that like a great physician, Jesus never employed the same exact method with two people because no two people are exactly the same. That's the reason why you can't share a prescription with someone else, because they, like, made it for you. In other words, Jesus meets each person exactly where they are. And he deals with their needs personally and individually. But at the same time, there is a common thread, and it's this. That every time Jesus deals with an individual, their life has changed. Their life has transformed in some way. Read through the Gospels, and you see Jesus dealing with individuals, and their lives are changed and transformed. Uh, Sometimes that's instantaneous. He meets them and their lives are changed instantly. And other times it's like a slow drip. But the result is always the same. When Jesus meets an individual, their life has changed for the better. And so far last week, uh, Clint helped us look at Andrew. Uh, In the future, we'll look at people like John the Baptist and Simon Peter, the woman at the well, so on and so forth. Uh, But today we're going to look at how he treats John the Apostle. And John the Apostle, he goes through this incredible transformation in his life. He goes from proud to meek, from angry to loving, from selfish to servant. And how does that happen? How can that happen in a person's life? How can that happen in your life? Do, do people think of you as a proud person? An angry person? Would someone describe you as a selfish person? It's actually, it's kind of hard, I'm finding, not to be selfish in a place like Los Angeles. It's in the air that we breathe and the water that we drink. How do you go from proud to meek, from angry to loving, from selfish to servant, especially in a culture that values the proud, that rewards the selfish? Well, the method that Jesus uses with John the Apostle shows us how we can be transformed, shows us how we can be renewed. And so let's look at how John deals, Jesus deals with John. And John's story starts exactly where we were last Sunday, which is why we had Hannah read the exact same passage. Um, the two of them, John and Andrew, they meet Jesus at exactly the same time. And if you read on and look at the episodes of John's life, what you find out is that John starts out as this proud person, an angry person, a really selfish person. But when Jesus is done with him, he's meek, he's loving, he's a servant. So what was his method? What did he do with John? Well, in a nutshell, it was to show him something glorious and then to humble him. And we're going to look at this under three headings. So first, what John wants. Second, what John sees. And third, what John becomes. So first, let's look at what John wants. And keep in mind, as we look at this, what we read in John chapter 1 is how John the Apostle himself tells the story. And so you're reading about the guy, but actually he's also the the one who wrote this down. 
Uh, he wrote the Gospel of John. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that when John and Andrew meet Jesus, these are actually the very first words spoken by Jesus in John's Gospel. So far in John's Gospel, Jesus hasn't uttered a word, hasn't said anything, even though incredible things have been said about him. He hasn't said a word until verse 38. And keep in mind when John, many, many years later, as the writer of the book of John first introduces Jesus, do you know what he calls him? Do you know a word he uses to describe him? Look up at verse one if you have it open. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He says, Jesus Christ is the word. The Greek word there for word is logos, and it actually says that the word was with God and the word was God. And so word is the word logos, but look at the word God. That shows up twice, and the word there for God is theos. Put those two words together, and you get theos, logos. And you have the word theology, which simply means word about God, or God word. In other words, what John is saying is Jesus Christ Himself, Jesus Christ himself is the word about God. He is theology itself in the flesh. And as you read John chapter one, John is intentionally, he's building this up as you read through this. He's creating anticipation. What is the word himself? What is theology? The word himself, what is he going to say when he speaks? What are the words that are gonna come out of his mouth? Verse 38, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? These are the first words he says. The word himself, these are the first words he says in John's gospel. Now I want us to pause and reflect on how profound this moment is. And do you, I love this, I hope you love this, that theology himself, the eternal one, the creator who gives life and light to all mankind, his first words are, what do you want? In other words, how can I help? What is it that you're looking for? Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus gives everyone what they want. He's not a genie, he's Lord. But look at his heart. Look at what he says. Look at him. This is him as that great physician. What is it? What is wrong? What do you need? How can I help? Uh, John and Andrew, they ask him, Rabbi, where are you staying? And then Jesus says, and this is the second thing he says, the word himself, theology himself. He says, come and you will see. And this, of course, on the surface is an invitation to spend the day with him. It says they spend the rest of the day with him. But remember, these are also the first words of the word of the Theos Logos himself. And so there's another layer probably of meaning here. And you could translate this as come and your eyes will be opened. Come and you will see. Come and your eyes will be opened. You'll see. And this is the great physician himself at his work, inviting John not just to spend one afternoon of discussions and friendship, but to a lifetime of coming and seeing. And John's story with Jesus begins with Jesus to invite him to come and see. And by the way, John's story ends that way too. Because remember, John also wrote the book of Revelation. 60 times, 60 times in the book of Revelation, John refers to things he sees or things that he saw. 
And at the very end, among the last words he writes in chapter 22 are these. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. John's life is marked by seeing what Jesus said to come and see. John can be described as many things, but you can't describe him without describing him as one who saw. And I like the way that G. Campbell Morgan describes him in his book. He says, yes, he had seen, he had heard, he had handled, but when he saw, he saw far more than others did. John was a man who was ever looking for the invisible and seeing it. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves because first we want to discover what John wants. What do you want, Jesus says. So what does John want? Well, it's hard to say exactly what John wants in this particular moment because the text doesn't tell us. But if you read through all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and if you look for all the times that John shows up, what begins to emerge is this. This is, what, this is John's heart desire. This begins to show up. What does John want? John wants power. John wants authority. He wants position. He wants people to serve him. Put it another way, what John wants, what he craves, is control. John wants control. And by the way, why does a person crave control? Why is it that you want control? Control of your life, control of your relationships, of your career, control of your finances, of your future, control of your calendar, of your colleagues, of your kids, or your ability to have kids, control of your street or your apartment building, and how loud or how quiet it is at certain times of day. Why is it that you crave that you want control? Well, because to not have it is terrifying. Think of the areas of your life where you feel a sense of anxiety. And it probably stems from a lack of control. You don't have control over that. You have a feeling of powerlessness over something. And when we don't have control, that anxiety or that fear that usually leads to anger or jealousy or both. And there's three stories in the life of John, the apostle, that I'm just going to be real honest. They don't reflect very well on him. You, you read through this and you think, hey, John's maybe not one of those Bible characters whose lives I should emulate. Uh, and it's in these stories where we see John wanting control. He, he comes across as proud and angry and selfish. And it's in these stories that we find out the answer to Jesus' question to John, what do you want? All three of them uh, in terms of timing, they all actually happen in really quick succession, too. It's like one right after the other, right after the other. There may be hours or only days in between these stories happening. And the first one, uh, we'll find it in Mark chapter 9. It's in a couple other places, but we'll find the first one in Mark chapter 9. And in Mark chapter 9, you might want to turn there, John comes to Jesus and he says, Hey, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. This doesn't reflect well on him. Like, here's somebody doing a good thing, like helping someone, and John's like, no, 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 sorry, you're not, you're not, you're not in the inner circle. You don't have the, you don't have the t-shirt. You don't, you don't get to do that. And what is that? It's pride. It's jealousy. It's John saying, hey, I'm one of the chosen 12. I'm in the inner circle. I'm a privileged one. 
but someone else is trying to hedge in here. They're trying to do my job. Someone else is special, so I told him to stop because he's not one of the special 12 people. And what's happening there? Well, John isn't in control. That guy's not one of us. We don't have any say in what he does, so we told him to stop. And there he is even grabbing control. We told him to stop. And of course, Jesus rebukes him, and he says this famous line in verse 40, whoever is not against us is for us. That's the first one. The second one is over in Luke chapter 9. But it's right around the same time as the first story. This happened within hours, maybe days. I don't know. This is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, by the way. Uh, Jesus had gone to a village in Samaria, and the people there, they were like, no, 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 sorry, we don't want you to come into our village, Jesus. So you just move along. And when the disciples see what happens, John and his brother James, they come to Jesus and they say in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, <laughs> Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> and it seems like a bit of an overreaction, if I'm being honest. Uh, no, no, sorry, we don't want you in our village, so then let's call down fire from heaven to destroy them. And it does seem like an overreaction, but at the same time, I think I can understand what John is feeling at this moment. This, happened, this has actually happened to me on more than uh, a couple of occasions where I was supposed to, to be somewhere, supposed to stay somewhere, and I got to the place, or I got nearly to the place, and I found out that I was rejected. No, 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 so you can't come in here. Uh, one time I was cycling through Wyoming, uh, cycling, not driving. We had no car. All of our bags, everything that we owned was attached to our bicycles, and we had cycled about 70 miles that day over an 8,000-foot mountain pass. Uh, and we finally got to the gates of Grand Teton National Park. And we thought, this, is, this place is beautiful. We're just going to relax here and get some rest. And we got to the gate, and the park ranger said, he looked at the four of us with our bikes loaded down with stuff, and he goes, hey, guys, sorry. Um, all our campsites are booked up. You can't come in. And no matter how hard we try to convince him to let us in, he, would, he just wouldn't let us in. He said, the only thing we could do, and I'm not kidding you, this is what he said. He goes, there's really no safe campgrounds between here and Yellowstone. So you're going to need to turn around, go up that road, uh, and go to Yellowstone National Park where there's a bunch of campsites available, and you're going to have to sleep there. Yellowstone was another 25 miles up the road on the other side of yet another mountain pass. So if you're counting, that's 100 miles over two mountain passes in one day. Uh, and uh, those are some of the most angry miles I've ever ridden on a bike. And I was ready to call down fire from heaven upon Grand Teton National Park to the point where there was nothing left but oozy lava from the mountains. Uh, and also, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, ah, okay, that's why that bicycle wheel on the screen is going, no, 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 not yet. Just wait. Now, why was I angry that day? And why was John angry? No control. I didn't have any control. Well, the third story is maybe even more shocking than the last one because of its sheer and utter brazen selfishness. But over in Mark chapter 10, and again, this isn't long after the previous two stories that we just looked at, John, along with his brother James, they make a shocking request. And here's what they say. 
Uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. In other words, Jesus, when you're glorified, when you're seated on the throne and given the name that is above every name on every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth is bowing down to you, we would like to be sitting next to you. (laughs) And by the way, don't you love the question that Jesus asks in verse 36? It's almost the same question in John chapter 1. It's almost the very first words he utters. What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? And so what is it that John wants? John wants control. And that desire for control causes him to become proud and angry and selfish. But remember when Jesus deals with an individual, he meets them exactly where they're at. He, he sees this in John. He has compassion for John. He has mercy for John. And so when John comes into contact with Jesus Christ, he is changed for the better. Well, John, by the way, he's one of those slow burn people. He wasn't changed in an instant. He was changed over time. And there's one event that sparked it all, sparked everything we just talked about, actually. And that leads us to our second point. What John sees, point two, what, what John sees. And what does John see? Well, one of the primary things he sees is Jesus' transfiguration. He sees Jesus transformed into an unsurpassable glory. The light, the glory of God emanates from him at this moment. You know, in John chapter 1, he says he is the light of all mankind. And I think John's referring to this moment where he saw Jesus on the side of a mountain transfigured. Because in Mark chapter 9, Jesus takes John, James, and Peter high up on a mountain. And here's what it says in Mark chapter 9. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there, he appeared, there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Now Mark wasn't there, but he does his absolute best to try and describe this event. And the best we can do is bow in reverence and try to understand what's happening. Because it says Jesus' garments become dazzling, like whiter than anyone could ever bleach. The word in the original language there is like the brightness of the sun reflecting off polished gold or brass. If you're looking at that and those rays hit your eyes, you can't even bear to hold them open. And along with Jesus, possibly, get this, on his right and on his left, are the two greatest heroes of the faith, Moses and Elijah. This is what John sees. Remember back in John chapter 1, Jesus asked him, what do you want? And what John wants is control and power and authority. And then Jesus says to him in John chapter 1, Come and you will see. Come and your eyes will be opened. And what is it that Jesus shows John? What does he see? He sees a power and an authority beyond anything he's ever seen. He's taken up to the mountain and he sees Jesus in his glory. But here's the challenging part of John's story. You would think that that would be enough to deal with his pride and his hunger for control. He's seen the glorious one. He's seen the one with all power and authority. How could he ever think that he could grasp for power and authority? But no, 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 not John. 
You know those three stories I just told you? Of his jealousy, of his anger, of his pride. Do you know when they happen? They all happen immediately after he sees Jesus in his glory. In other words, seeing the transfiguration, seeing Jesus dazzling in glory is not what changed him. So what is it that changed him? How did he become the meek, loving, servant-hearted person that he has the reputation for at the end of his life? Well, that's point three, what John becomes. John becomes meek, he becomes loving, and he becomes servant-hearted. Eventually, he becomes the author of the Gospel of John. Do you know how many times he mentions his own name in the book that he wrote? That he features in? Zero. He writes about himself a number of times, but doesn't even mention his own name. Instead, he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. Which some people read that and they think, oh, how arrogant of him. But I don't think it's him saying that. I think it's him not saying he was the most loved disciple, but him saying that he was there. He was only one of the 12 because of the gracious love of Christ in spite of his pride. He becomes the author of three letters, And the emphasis in those letters is for people to love and serve one another. How? How does he become this meek, loving, and servant-hearted person? What is it that he sees? He sees the glorious one go on and humble himself. Because not long after all these events in John's life, Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time. And he tells the disciples three times that he will be betrayed and killed. And on the very last night of Jesus' life, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And when he's there, he, he takes three of the disciples to kind of come with him off to this corner of the garden. And, and these three disciples, they get to hear what he prays. And John is one of those three. And by the way, they also see something. This is what John sees. He sees Jesus so overwhelmed with grief and fear that it said, the text says he sweat drops of blood. The glorious one, the one who maybe a week or two before was transformed into a glory beyond comprehension. This one has now fallen to the ground, it says, and is sweating blood. And here's what John hears him pray. While Jesus says to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then here's what he hears Jesus pray. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then it says they fell asleep. Here's what John sees and hears. He sees a man so full of glory that Moses and Elijah come down to him and talk to him. He sees someone with that kind of glory that when he's on the top of a mountain, the glory of God covers him in a cloud. He sees that glorious one now fallen on the ground, sweating blood, praying, yet not what I will, but what you will. The one with all authority giving up his will. And then the other thing we know about John is that he was present at the trial of Jesus. He was present at the crucifixion of Jesus. John saw him mocked, he saw him unjustly convicted, he saw him hung on the cross, and he saw him breathe his last breath. 
He saw the glorious one so disfigured that he fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy that says in Isaiah 52, there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. And so what John saw was the one who is at one time transfigured into glory just a few weeks later, disfigured to the point that he no longer looked human. And of course, why does Jesus endure all of that? Well, John, John reflects on that. And you know the verse in John chapter 3, verse 16. You know this verse. If you've never been to church before, you know what this says. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Jesus Christ, the only one who truly has control, he gives up his control. He's arrested, he's mocked, he's beaten, he's killed. Why? Because of love. He did that because he loved men like John, because he loves men and women like you and me, that in spite of our unwillingness to humble ourselves, he loves us anyway. And that right there, that's the Christian gospel. And that's what John saw and heard throughout his life. And that is how he became meek and loving and servant-hearted. That was Jesus' method with him. All right, now what's with this wheel? Why do I have a video of a spinning wheel? Um, why do I, did I bring a wheel with me? Well, it's because the spinning wheel is a good illustration of what had to happen in John's life for him to be transformed like this. And it's a good illustration of what has to happen in anyone's life to experience real transformation. How do you become the kind of person who can give up control? How do you become the kind of person who is meek rather than proud, loving rather than angry, a servant rather than selfish? Well, look at the wheel. Um, full disclosure, I stole this illustration from Charles Spurgeon. And one of uh, his sermons, he tells this story. And when I read it, it had such a profound impact on my life um, that I, this story just stick, stuck in my head for, for years now. And here's the story that Spurgeon tells. Uh, it's a parable of sorts. I'll just read it as he preached it back in, I think it was 1908. Uh, the story goes that a certain king take, being taken prisoner was bound in chains and dragged along at the chariot wheels of his conqueror. As he went along, he kept looking at the wheel and shedding tears. Then looking again, at the wheel and lifting his eyes and smiling. The conqueror turned and said, why are you looking at that wheel? He said, I was thinking such is the lot of man. Just now I was, I was here. Sorry, just now I was here, now I am there. But soon I may be here again at the top of the wheel and you may be grinding in the dust. And commenting on that little story, Spurgeon said, sometimes one part of the wheel is at the top and then it's at the bottom. Sometimes this part is exalted, but soon it sinks down to the dust and then it is lifted into the air. And then again, by a single revolution, is brought down again to the earth. So it is with our life. Now, I'm going to apply this image in a way that Spurgeon didn't in his sermon. But I think he would agree with me. I mean... He's dead, so. (laughs) 
But this wheel is a perfect illustration of both how a person becomes a Christian and then how a person continually grows as a Christian. In other words, how a person is transformed by Christ for the first time and then how a person is continually transformed by Christ. Put it yet another way, this is how the great physician does his work. When Jesus meets John the Apostle, John is, he's sort of at the top of the wheel. He's up here. Um, John is actually from a wealthy fishing family, uh, sort of a conglomerate. He's got money. He's got houses. Um, he's got a house down in Jerusalem, even though he's from Galilee. So he's got money. He's got people who work for him. And one day he's going to inherit, along with his brother, the whole fishing empire. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. that, that there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is he is proud. And he is angry and he's prone to jealousy. And then he meets Jesus, and over the years, he finally comes to a place where he can recognize his pride and his arrogance, his need for control. And after hearing the prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden, after seeing what Jesus did at the end of his life, he finally humbles himself. But then Jesus lifts him back up. And that's a revolution of the wheel. That's how a person becomes a Christian, a revolution of the will. You're up here, you're proud. You're trying to save yourself. You're trying to convince yourself and everyone else that you're good enough. But then you come into contact with Jesus and you realize that you're not. But then through the gospel, Jesus lifts you up and he brings you back to the top. It's also how a person grows as a Christian. Here at the top, the Christian, they're exalting Christ. They're worshiping him. They're adoring him. They're contemplating something glorious or merciful or loving about Christ. But inevitably what happens when a person sees the glory or comes into contact with the glory of Christ is the light of Christ's glory points out the darkness and brokenness in our life. And so we've realized that there are things that we have to confess that we continually have to bring to him. And so we're humbled. But then in our humility, if we turn to Christ and say yet again, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What does Christ do through the gospel? He lifts us up and brings us back to the top. And that's it. Amen. And also remember, we're talking about a wheel here. And so with every revolution of the wheel, if it's touching the ground, there's forward movement. In other words, Christ not only lifts us up, but he sends us out. We're moving forward. And if you've been around Christchurch for a while, this sort of language, it might sound a bit familiar because around here we talk about Christian discipleship, Christian growth like this. Though the way we grow is through these same four postures, up, down, up, out. Remember these? And that's exactly what a wheel does as it, as it turns. At least any fixed point on the outside of the wheel. It moves up, then down, then up. And down, and as it does that, it moves out and it moves forward. And so this is Jesus' method with John. And the specifics of it are specific to John, but the theory, the method is the same with each and every one of us. It's like a wheel. Or it's up, down, up, out. Um, now, I want to just ground this in reality. Let me just earth this for you in what it could look like in a person's life. And this is so mundane and plain but it's just a tangible picture of what this kind of living looks like lived out. That if you're the kind of person who is regularly going through that turning of the wheel, this is the kind of life that you live. I have a friend 
um, who, uh, he sort of had humble beginnings. He started in a pretty poor family uh, in Texas, for you Texans. Um, and uh, he grew up, his, his stepfather was a sort of work-a-day plumber, and so he would work on the back of the plumbing truck growing up, and then he went off to university, and he was one of those like early computer nerds. And he became so successful at writing software that at the pinnacle of his career, he was one of the top executives in one of the world's largest corporations. I don't know how many millions or billions of dollars he was responsible for and how many thousands of staff and people he was responsible for. He's at the, the upper echelon of business in the world. Uh, one time I was on a mission trip with him and um, I was asking him how he slept because of jet lag and he goes, oh, I didn't sleep because my company was trying a hostile takeover of this other company, which is a huge one that all of you will have heard of. And I was like, that's what you did last night? Yeah. This is the kind of person he is, the kind of position he has. And yet, he's a Christian. Yet, he's the kind of person who for decades has been, the revolution of the wheel has been happening in his life. And so um, years ago when Emmy and I bought our first house, some things had to be fixed. And I remember he just, as a friend, was asking me like, hey, how's the new house? And I was like, well, it's all pretty good, but I've got this leak under my sink. And he goes, no problem. Um, I'll be there Saturday morning. Now, this is a man who could have bought our house probably four times over. And yet, what does he do? He humbles himself. A man who probably that week was on the company private jet lowers himself and is underneath my sink. And this is what it looks like as we live these things out. We, be, we, we go from proud to meek. We go from angry to loving. We go from selfish to selfless. This is what it begins to look out, uh, work out in our life. That a person who is continually growing in our own godliness, in a sense, is making these revolutions of the wheel, exalting Christ, humbling themselves before Christ, being lifted up by Christ and sent forward to live and love like Christ. This is what it looks like. And the more that we do that, the more we find ourselves transformed into a person who is like Jesus, who lives like him, who loves like him, who serves like him. This is what happens when Jesus uses his methods on us. Isn't that amazing? And don't you want that? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that you want to see us transformed, that when we come into contact with you, you change us for the better. And Lord, all of us have come in here with um, maybe a, a need, a desire, a craving for control that we need to give up. Or we've come in with a brokenness or a weakness. Lord Jesus, would you as the great physician please come into our lives? Meet us exactly where we are and take us where we need to go in order that we can become more like you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.